0: Hey, legends, you know, none of our interviews or episodes ever date, ever. They are all timeless and ready for you for when you're ready to listen. Download the lot and rip in.
1: <laughs> all times, say
0: to all times. God's if you like. That's right. <laughs> It's a situation that we're becoming more familiar with, more accepting of, and it's about bloody time. A gay person should now feel more comfortable in telling their story, but more importantly, living their life how they choose, without fear of repercussion. However, back in the day, it was sadly a very, very different story. We're one-on-one with the dazzler, Kenny Dunlop. Ken was a professional wrestler in Australia beginning back in the late 1970s in a locker room full of male testosterone and ego. It was a bloke's world. Ken, a gay wrestler in a straight world, Was the industry accepting back in the 1970s?
1: Not really, no. It wasn't talked about. It was very, like, I kept it to myself, obviously, at the time. Like, I was only 16 when I started training, and coming to terms with my sexuality at the same time as learning to wrestle was a pretty hard uh, situation for me to be in. And especially when you're at the gym, like, people like, Casey Miller, um, all those sort of people. They're pretty rough, tough sort of guys, and even at the gym, they used to have a porno night once a month at the gym, and they wouldn't let me there because I was too young. And um, But they'd get in like six or seven pizzas, a couple of dozen cans of beer, and there'd be about 20 guys there at the gym having this porno night once <laughs> you know, once a month, and I'd get kicked out really early because I was underage. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Wrestling, scripted, yes. Entertainment, yes. We know the routine. But it was, back in the day in particular, a very blokey environment. Respectfully, as offending isn't my intent, but from what I've heard, the industry and the locker rooms were largely a testosterone overloader, a dick swinging contest. Who's the toughest? Who's the baddest? Who's had the most women? Who's got the most money? It's a very different type of dressing room, I think it's safe to say.
1: Oh, definitely. Back in the old days, a lot of the old um, foreign wrestlers would sit there playing cards, smoking cigars, and they'd be playing for money. Mm-hmm. And we were hardly, especially me being a young newcomer, was pretty much ignored, and we were sort of put way to the side. And I mean, the guys were nice to us. But they just didn't include us. We weren't welcome into their into their group. And when I moved to Sydney, like two years later, it was still the same. It was it was pretty tough. And and some of the guys were really hard on us, young guys. They used to beat the living shit out of us. Um, and it was just to prove that they're number one. You're you're at the bottom. Uh, and even training, I mean, I remember Roy Heffernan asked come down to the gym once as a favour. And I mean. I don't get on very well. We never have. But I respected him as a wrestler. He's a fantastic wrestler. And he he fractured my jaw training. He just belted me right across the face and blood was dripping out of my mouth. And for two days, I was really sore. And I ended up going to the hospital getting x-rays and I had a a hairline fracture of the jaw just from training because he just wanted to prove how tough he was.
0: Ken, was it a secret life? Were you almost living two lives, one professional, one, one personal, one, and the two paths dare not meet?
1: Definitely. I was very good at that. I I can totally separate my life. I would go training twice a week. I'd wrestle once, twice, sometimes three or four times a week, depending on what the schedule was, and then I'd have my private life. And don't forget, in those days too, homosexuality was still illegal in New South Wales, till 1982. So wherever I was going out, uh, was illegal. And when I was in Melbourne, when I was only 17, I started going out on the the sort of scene down in Melbourne. Mm. Illegal, because I was under the age of, in those days, the the legal consent for for gays was 21. So I didn't know that at the time, but every time I went out there with someone or did something, uh, it was illegal. So it it was pretty scary, scary times.
0: The early days in the industry, confusing, confronting, frightening, intimidating. I actually can't probably imagine the range of emotions and or frustrations that you would have been through.
1: Yeah, it was, it was pretty tough. Um, most of the guys knew that I was gay. Mm. Again, it was never talked about. Um, I told all the young guys that I taught, everyone I taught, I told them straight out front in case there was a problem. And luckily enough, no one ever had a problem. I took different partners along to, to shows and some of the guys met them and they were always nice and mm. civil to them. But the older guys, again, like, would look um, and just, yeah, they just ignored it. I did get abused once. Um, I'll never say who who it was. It was someone I really respected. Um at the time, because in the early 80s, perms were the fashion. <laughs> yeah. And I had my hair permed, I had the blonde highlights put through. I had my ear pierced. So I was I was really cool with it. <laughs> and I got into the ring and i forgot to take my earring out. And the guy just said, Are oh, you fucking faggot? Your earrings in. And he leaned over and just ripped it out. Oh. And I mean it hurt like hell. Blood was pissing out of my ear, um, but then the, the bell went and we just gone on to our normal match and not a word was said and I, I was a little take, taken back. I was shocked. Um, I lost a bit of respect for him that night, obviously, and it was never mentioned. And it's funny, during the match, Bobby Burns was the referee. He found both parts of the earring <laughs> and after the match, he came up and he, he actually apologised. Or the other guy but she wouldn't admit himself obviously mm. and he gave me the two bits of earring but i never ever wore earrings again
0: <laughs> professional wrestling in australia if you remember the 1970s well you'll remember it was an institution festival hall was sold out uh midday saturday was our favorite time of the week joe the gadget man packed away his tools on channel nine Then after the commercial break, it was King Curtis, Big Bad John, Ronnie Miller and the like. But in the late 70s, early 80s, the industry very much disappeared in Australia. Unfortunate timing for you because you would have grown up on all these memories, but it was a memory. It wasn't reality.
1: It was an awesome memory. As a a kid, I loved the wrestling. and, Mm. And when we moved to Melbourne in, I think it was 1971, I think, Mum and I went every Saturday night to Festival Hall and quite a few times I went to the TV tapings at Channel 9 in, in Richmond in those days and then we'd rush home on the tram because it used to be taped at 10 o'clock in the morning and they'd show it at midday. So we'd rush home to see if we were on the TV as well. And, yeah, it was a great time. I had my first match in August 1978 and World Championship Wrestling finished in December. 1978 the melbourne scene was still pretty good the clubs yeah. it was mainly like uh, italian clubs and shopping centers shopping centers was a big business down in melbourne at the time sydney was a better organized and more work so i came up here for a trial match with steve rackman once mm. and he offered me much work as he'd give me and so i moved to sydney and the club scene up here was fantastic because you had steve rackman larry o'day ron miller Roy Hefner and all promoting shows, and there was at least, I said like at least three a week. Sometimes you can have six a week, just depending on the week. And that all worked together. Like if, especially Friday nights for some reason was a big night, yep. sometimes there'd be two or three shows on a Friday night. Roy would ring Rackwin and say, look, I've got one, Kenny and Wayne, because because we were the new young guys. So, so Roy would have us maybe on first match at his club, then Rackwin would have us on a later match at his club. So we'd... Wrestle, track suit, jump in the car, and zoom straight over to the other club. And that was, those were great days.
0: Certainly. Well, you mentioned Roy Heffernan a couple of times, the fabulous kangaroo. Uh, He played a role in your your training. What type of experience was that for a young bloke?
1: Oh, just incredible. Like I've learned in Melbourne, there was John Snyder, Mm -hmm. Casey Miller, Sam Rothy, Jim Damaris, and Fred Berger. And they were all really good. I did train with Mario Milano and George Oates for about three or four months. That was just average, I must admit. I didn't learn much from them. But when I moved to Sydney, yeah, Roy Heffernan uh, was was taking the classes and, oh, I mean, he's just a brilliant man. His mind was absolutely incredible and he became like a second father to me. Mm. Uh, We were that close. and i trained with him twice a week. Saturday mornings we'd go training at different police boys clubs and then we'd all go back to Roy's house and have his wife Joyce would cook us a bit of a lunch, then we'd get on the booze all afternoon and he'd tell us all his incredible stories, which was just amazing.
0: Before wrestling became mainstream, well before pay television, a worker was able to travel extensively throughout a, a territory system if they were good enough. Where's your wrestling taking you? Because it's not just Australia.
1: No, I went over to, to England. Um, I nearly had the chance for Canada. It was all going really well. We were all lined up to go. And I think it was two weeks before we had the deal, um, Stuhart rang me up and said they were closing down. They got bought out by Vince McMahon. The promotion was closing. And we were absolutely disgusted mm. and devastated. Um and I kept trying because in those days, again, it was harder than it is today because there weren't as many promotions, obviously, yeah. around the world in those days. Plus, you had to send videotapes, and because there's no emails, there's no computers, you know. So I, I sent off every year. I'd send off about ten or twenty videotapes uh, with letters, and I'd, I'd get Roy Heffner to write letters, Steve Rackman wrote letters for us. I even had a, a an offer which was fantastic, from Mr. Lou Fez himself. Wow. I sent him I sent him a copy of our tape, and he replied with a, he gave us a reference to Japan, as well as his autographed book, which was just out of this world. Yeah. It unfortunately didn't help us get into Japan, because in those days, again, there's only two promotions in Japan. Mm. There's an and Baba, uh, where now you've got about, Oh, twenty or thirty promotions over there, so the work is easier. Um, I did speak to Barber at the time, and he said we we're on the short list. But they only used to bring in sixteen foreign wrestlers a year, um, and then we got the offer in nineteen ninety-two to go to England for Dale Martin promotions, and um, that was incredible. I, I, I loved it and I hated it all at the same time. It was exciting to go over there. And when we had discussions on the phone, we were supposed to have five days a week, have the weekends off. So we thought, oh, good, because we were based in Blackpool. Yep. And I thought we'd go and get the um, train into London and walk around. When we arrived, um, they gave us a schedule, seven days, sometimes two shows a day. And I I just said to, to the guy, I said, look, you know, when we were talking on the phone, he said five days. He said, if you don't like it, fuck off. So I went, like, fair enough, like, I don't mind. And, yeah, we worked seven days a week, and it was totally different over there to, to Australia. Like um, here, if we did a show in Canberra, say, anywhere more than two or three hours, you'd get put up at a hotel mm. or, or fly, not over there. Like, we drove from Leeds to Scotland. We left at six o'clock in the morning. We arrived there at five o'clock in the afternoon. We had to, to wrestle, then drive back. We got back to the hotel, I think it was about four o'clock in the morning. We had to leave at six in the morning to the next show. And that was pretty much halfway to where we were already been. And I said, why don't we just stay in a hotel? And they just looked at me like, are you crazy? (laughs) And it was all a minibus. You'd have a certain spot. We had a a guy would pick us up, take us to the little meeting spot, and we'd all go in a minibus. And I'll tell you what, it's bloody hard work.
0: It's not all full stadiums. You've wrestled in some very unusual places. Greyhound races, the AIS, an army barracks, but the two I'm really interested in, a jail in Melbourne, and a mental hospital. Interesting choice.
1: Very interesting. The, the prison was, the jail in Melbourne was very scary because I was only 17. And at the time, that was in my first wrestling. And when we got there, we had to go through all the security, the body searched the whole thing. We were assigned a prisoner to look after us, and they took us into a room, and we were all in one room. There were three guards with guns in the room, and they did tell us, don't ask the guys what you're in for. And, of course, me being young and inquisitive, the first thing I said, like he made me a cup of coffee, I said, what are you in for? And he said, oh, a double murder. And, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and he was about 23. And I basically literally shit myself. I thought, oh, Christ, you know. So I got changed. And as I was walking out, though, like, again, being, you know, my lily white skin and my little light wearing the lycra shorts on, I started getting woof whistles. <laughs> 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 and I wrestled the Maltese Falcon and we had, we had a fairly decent match and it was, it was pretty weird. After the match he went and had a shower and I was going to go after him because only one person can go at a time. And he said to me, don't go to the showers. Bit I on all sweaty. He said, don't go to the showers. He said there were three guys standing there masturbating watching him shower. Oh. And he said, said, if you go.
0: (laughs) So I didn't go. (laughs) You didn't go. Ken, so many amazing, wonderful stories, and we've known each other for, this will make us feel old, probably the best part of 30 years. You have finally relented. You've put pen to paper. You've jotted down your memories and your moments, and you've kept a log. We've got a book coming out and it's coming together brilliantly, I understand.
1: It is. It's all finished. It's all in the hands of the publishers, Shoreline Publishing Group. They've been fantastic. Uh, Bradley Shaw, who runs it, he's been very patient. Like, they wanted it to finish late last year and I just kept asking for delays, delays, delays. And even then he said, oh, end of January. So January said another delay because I kept, I kept thinking things, yeah. and I just wanted to add something else. And then right at the very last moment, um, I thought I haven't put anything about what I've done after my wrestling career. Because mm-hmm. After I finished wrestling, because it happened so suddenly because I had the heart attack, um, that's why I finished wrestling, I was lost because I've never, I've never had spare time in my life. So I ended up going to do acting courses and singing lessons and all that sort of stuff. So, yes, yeah, so that was all fun. So then at the last minute, a week before I was supposed to finish it, we decided to add another chapter. So since I had it finished originally the first time I gave it in the final draft, we've added nine more chapters. Wow. So, so they were very patient and they've been fantastic. The book's called Asla Dunlop, Inside My Squared Circle. And it comes out in October, and yeah, so it should be a, a very good, hopefully, read. I'm sure there's plenty of things in there, which some things I've kept very private, some very personal things I wasn't going to put in the book, but um, Joey convinced me to. Go, this is your, your only doing it once, yeah. so there's a few things in there which will shock some people, and. Yeah, so it's me,
0: it's my life. It'll be a story about wrestling, about sport, about growing up in Australia and about a gay man that is now a wonderful ambassador as a wrestler and uh, just as a bloke, a a wonderful fella. You're a natural storyteller too, Ken, you know that. I wish you every success with the book. I'll certainly update our unfiltered listeners on its progress uh, for later in the year. It's been a pleasure having you on and sharing your wonderful story, mate.
1: It's been fantastic. Thanks for the the, the opportunity.